Welcome to the PA Books podcast. PA Books is a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. This program features interviews with authors of books on Pennsylvania people, history, sports, business, nature, and politics. While the focus is always on Pennsylvania, topics like the Revolutionary War, the Battle of Gettysburg, the Industrial Revolution, the coal and steel industries, and authors like John Updike, David McCullough, and John Grogan have a universal appeal. We hope you enjoy this podcast. This week on PA Books, David Schultz and Scott Mingus, authors of The Second Day at Gettysburg. Our guests today are David Schultz and Scott Mingus. They are the authors of this book, The Second Day at Gettysburg, The Attack and Defense of Cemetery Ridge, July 2nd, 1863. David, we'll start with you. What is it about Gettysburg that keeps bringing you back? My great-great-grandfather was in the uh, 2nd Pennsylvania Cavalry, Company C. He hailed from uh, Columbia, Pennsylvania. His brother, that would make him what my... Uh, uh, great great uncle was a lieutenant in the same company also from Columbia and they were detached from the regiment and assigned to army headquarters army of the Potomac he was at the Leicester house at, during the Battle of Gettysburg and on July 4th they asked for a furlough so they could go to Columbia to visit their ailing mother the furlough was okayed we happened to find that letter in a small antique shop in Northern Virginia. And today that is being taken care of at the Drum Barrack Civil War Museum out in Los Angeles before it deteriorates. But uh, in their attempt to cross the Susquehanna River, they never made it because of course somebody burnt the bridge down. They tried to hire a person with a boat and that person turned him into a, the provost marshal. They were arrested. For desertions? Uh, possibly, or possible spies, who knows. But once they were interviewed, they realized they were not deserters or spies, and they sent them back to the regiment, which was on its way to Westminster with prisoners. How did you learn that story? Uh, actually, uh, Professor Richard Rollins, who has passed away, and we all miss him dearly, a great Gettysburg historian, uh, Richard happened to find that letter when him and I were doing some research for his book on the Battle of Gettysburg, Pickett's Charge in fact. He found that and he asked me about my uh, great-great-grandfather and I really didn't know too much about it other than I had his name. He says, well here, and uh, Sam Schultz, and it was him. We did a little bit more research and uh, it turned out that uh, we were right. That was my great-great-grandfather and the rest is uh, pretty much history. I jumped in with both feet and have not stopped since 1985. What else did you find out about him? Did he keep a diary or were there other letters? Uh, we come to find out, not really too much after that. I did find out that uh, his claim to fame was he never missed a payday. <laughs> but his brother, Henry, was captured at the Battle of Yellow Tavern and imprisoned in Libby Prison. And the Confederates, upon receiving the letter that... Uh, his mother was on her deathbed, uh, released him. And by the time he did get back to uh, Columbia, Pennsylvania, she had passed on. How old were you when you discovered that you had this connection? 
Oh uh, my gosh. Uh, I would have been, what, 36? Oh, so uh, growing up you weren't a Civil War buff? I'm just a buff, but not a historian mm. like, like I am now. Scott Mingus, how long have you been interested? Oh, I've been interested in the Civil War from quite the opposite from the time I was a little boy. My, have, uh, my father was veteran of World War II, had great uncle that fought in World War I, had three great great uncles that fought at the Battle of Gettysburg in the 7th West Virginia Infantry. My great great grandfather was a 15 year old drummer boy in the 51st Ohio Volunteers uh, who marched uh, with Sherman and then fought in Tennessee at the Battles of Franklin and Nashville. So when I was probably six years old or so, my parents bought me for Christmas one year a very large Marks 54 millimeter playset called the uh, blue and gray centennial set. So these little toy army men really hooked me. And then uh, three or four years later, my parents bought me a subscription to a, an old Civil War magazine called Civil War Times Illustrated. Uh, and so from the time I was 9, 10, 11 years old, I was devouring Bruce Catton books at the local library. I was reading Civil War Times Illustrated. I was refighting little battles out in my backyard using maps from Civil War books and setting up the little army men and things. So I've been, I guess you'd say a Civil War nut probably from the time I was extremely small. Did you grow up near Gettysburg? No, I actually grew up in southeastern Ohio. I grew up about 10 miles from the, the uh, childhood home of General Phil Sheridan, 20 miles from the home of William T. Sherman, and probably 30, 35 miles from George uh, Armstrong Custer's home. So southeastern Ohio is steeped in Civil War history from the, the generalship that comes from that area, a number of regiments. Uh, and there's a, a lot of Civil War history in the area. We had a major Civil War camp uh, called Camp Goddard uh, in downtown Zanesville, Ohio. So uh, I've always you know, just been tremendously interested in the subject. How old were you when you first went to Gettysburg? Twelve. Yeah, I made my first visit here at 12 years old. Still have phenomenal memories of that and uh, you know, really became a buff uh, coming over here. David, how old were you when you first went to Gettysburg? Ten. Did you get hooked, or was it just another trip you had to go along with your parents? Um, no, actually, I was 10 years old, and uh, I came down to Gettysburg with my father and my grandfather, and my grandfather introduced me to two licensed battlefield guides, Dr. Jacob Sheeds and Dr. William Redinger, two classic gentlemen. And uh, from thereafter, every summer, I came back to... Pennsylvania and stayed quite a long time with my grandparents. My grandfather made sure I was always down in Gettysburg when time permitted. And several times I stayed with uh, Colonel Sheeds at his house and got to go with him when he did his tours. And once again, uh, although it was, I was a buff uh, at that age, the connection was there. Because even then I knew I had uh, ancestors that had fought there, but just... Uh, Becoming a teenager, I kind of lost a little bit of interest in it, but it seemed to draw me. Every time I come back to Pennsylvania, come home, I spent more time at Gettysburg than I did seeing my cousins, my aunts and uncles. And uh, once again, uh, it just got bigger and bigger and bigger and, until that day in Northern Virginia when I was older. And it, that's when it just hit me that there was more to this than just... Uh, a battlefield at Gettysburg. It when became you, personal. When you each go there now, is there a particular place that you're drawn to? Uh, for me, there really isn't. What draws me to Gettysburg is not the just the battlefield itself. 
which is just you know, just an awesome place to be. But what I concluded was the approaches to Gettysburg, the outlying areas, the encampments, the roads. Uh, I have a, a third cousin, Dean Schultz, who owns Gettysburg Engineering, and he is a uh, civil engineer, and he does a lot of surveying for Adams County. And uh, with Gene's knowledge and the access he has to much of this private property laying outside of Gettysburg, that's why I've spent the past 20 years exploring, is working from the battlefield out. And then once I'm out, I started working myself in. So there's no really particular place because it's all hallowed ground. Uh, one of my favorite places is Artillery Ridge. And Artillery Ridge is just a small, low-lying ridge that parallels the Baltimore Pike. And it begins down around McAllister Hill, just near where Rock Creek passes under Baltimore Pike, all the way up to South Cemetery Ridge. And the reason I like that is it was instrumental in stopping a Confederate attack on the night of July 2nd on into July 3rd. And the artillery pieces there, there wasn't a great many of them, but they successfully helped stop that issue with General Meade and block that gap from the Confederates ultimately taking the Baltimore Pike where they did have a, a toehold on it. I should say, east of it, below it. And in the process of the new visitor center being built a few years back, a National Park Service representative mentioned that it would be a good place for the parking to be built up on this ridge because nothing significant had happened on this ridge. A gentleman named Jerry Russell, who was then the head of the, uh, I believe it was the um, American Civil War Roundtables Association got a hold of me as he knew I was studying that part of the battlefield and the artillery. And in the process of this, the National Park Service invited me back. And I was able to get with the uh, Park Watch people, the licensed battlefield guides people. Wayne Motts in particular helped us save this, this ridge line. But Richard, Dr. Richard Rollins and myself co-led a tour of the National Park Service and some other dignitaries uh, beginning on Hunt Avenue and walking north toward Cemetery Hill. And uh, we've actually found friction primers, park watch people with uh, uh, metal detectors. We found friction primers and we tagged them with little red flags. Is that for, for the artillery? or For, for the artillery, rifles? a friction primer, correct. It, it went down in the vent of the artillery piece and when the gunner yanked it, it sparked like you would a match. And that ignited the, the powder in, in the cannon. And of course the cannon, the round went out, the cannon recoiled. And being that these were young cannoneers, he picked up the friction primer, unhooked it, dropped it, and put a fresh one on for the next calling, for the next round. And in the process of doing that, you can find out where his clump of friction primers were and you could step off the 17 feet to the gun and pretty much know where that gun was. Mm -hmm. So we found 23 of the 24 guns I had marked 
and we could never figure out what that last gun was until I finally read that one of the guns was removed because of a broken uh, axle. So that area is not under asphalt now? That area is not under asphalt. As a matter of fact, what was really unique, that was in November, and the day the Park Watch people, Richard Rollins and myself and Dr. Rittinger, walked that ridge, placed our little orange flags, it snowed that night. And there was about an inch of snow on the ground. And you could see those flags from the Baltimore Pike. You, know, you could look up 100 yards on the ridge and see these gun emplacements. And uh, when the National Park Service came and walked it, well, let me back up here. We got there at sunrise, Dr. Richard Rollins and myself. And we stepped out. We saw footprints in the snow. And we thought, hey, Sasquatch was here. You know, something big was here looking <laughs> this over. When we finished the tour with the National Park Service, a car pulled up while we were discussing it. And Ed Barr stepped out of the car. And I looked down at Ed's feet, and I knew... It was Ed Bars who had beat us all there at sunrise. And Ed uh, approached and he asked if we had come to a conclusion. And the National Park Service said, yes, this, this ridge has to be saved. And uh, Scott, how do you look at the park? The oh, good question, Brian. I mean, for me, I'm, I'm similar to Dave. Obviously, I consider the entire park to be hollow ground. But there is a spot that's very special to me, and that's East Cemetery Hill. Uh, for two reasons. One, I tend to specialize in Jewel Borley's division uh, in the Gettysburg campaign. Of course, uh, previous one of my previous appearances here with you, we discussed my book, Flames Beyond Gettysburg, that talked about uh, Jewel Borley's division, the burning of the Wrightsville Bridge, etc. cetera. Um, I also wrote a book on the Louisiana Tigers and their fight on East Cemetery Hill. So my interest in Jewel Borley is one of the key reasons, but of course the other big reason, as I mentioned, uh, Earlier, I had three great-great-uncles that fought at the Battle of Gettysburg. They were in the 7th West Virginia Infantry, and their monument is on East Cemetery Hill. That was the area where the uh, Sons of the Mountains uh, counterattacked against the Louisiana Tigers of well after dark on uh, the evening of July 2nd, 1863, uh, and pushed, you know, as the, as the West Virginians will tell you, pushed the Tigers off the hill. As the Louisianans will tell you, they were retiring anyway when the Yankees came up and just you know, made a lot of noise on top of the hill. So the truth is probably somewhere in between. But on most of my visits to Gettysburg, I'll make sure I at least get out of the car and I'll walk over to the South West Virginia Monument and pause and contemplate the fighting that must have occurred there on the evening of July 2nd. Was there much night fighting? Here at Gettysburg, not a lot. I mean, the, the big action, of course, was the attack on... Uh, Cemetery Hill on, on the evening of July 2nd. Uh, that's been well documented in a number of different books. Uh, there were some sporadic other attacks that occurred at, during the nighttime, but nothing of that kind of magnitude. But in reality, most of the fighting here, with the exception of East Cemetery Hill, was certainly done by and large by, uh, by the, the uh, start of evening. Well, what was nighttime like during the battle? The, the, how far apart were the, were the different armies and did people get to sleep much? Well, obviously, July 2nd is the focal point of our new book. Uh, in those days, the armies were barely, in some cases, less than a mile <laughs> apart, depending on the lines. The Union, of course, was in a fishhook-type position uh, with some auxiliary lines in various places. The Confederates generally were a mile to the west or north or northeast, depending on where the positions were. Uh, but certainly, you know, that was fairly close proximity. And then, of course, the Confederates were 
predominantly launching attacks from the exterior alliance towards the interior alliance. Uh, but for the people, yes, but people getting sleep. Uh, now, you know, by and large, for the nighttime, people were able to come out of their houses and they could stroll the streets of Gettysburg uh, if they so chose. Uh, because most of the shooting was done, the artillery pretty much knocked off shortly after dark. Was there sort of a gentleman's agreement that you didn't attack at night? Pretty much. Not only that, but uh, they couldn't see. Yeah. Communications. Uh, this is what this, this book is about. It, it's not like a bunch of troops just showed up by accident and a battle started. They slept got up in the morning and continued. There's reasons people were, were where they were supposed to be uh, at a particular time. Uh, example, as evening dropped on July 1st, Robert E. Lee decides he's not going to be continuing the push to Cemetery Hill uh, for obvious reasons. Uh, what happened was, as, as the battle is winding down about 4, 4.30 p.m., an unexpected Union division approaches out of nowhere from the east below what they call Benner's Hill. And that was from the 12th Corps. And uh, several Union officers rode to the top of Benner's Hill where they had spotted Confederates observing them. Well, the Confederates beat a hasty retreat to the west. And not only did the Union officers ride to the top of the hill and take possession of it, they actually ordered two brigades of infantry to start their attack. And they were moving toward the base of Benner's Hill with skirmishers moving up Benner's Hill. When this was reported to General Richard Ewell, commanding the Second Corps, the Army of Northern Virginia, there's a cliche out there about take that hill of practicable that Robert E. Lee asked Ewell. Well, when this news reached him that there was Union soldiers off his exposed left flank and possible rear, he of course stopped any attack south to go look at that. Now we have dusk taking place now. The sun is beginning to set behind South Mountain when he asks, Robert E. Lee asks, one of his uh, officers on his staff, Brigadier General William Pendleton, Chief of Artillery, to send some folks south to see what what is beyond the Union right flank, as he knows it, or the Union left flank, as he knows it. As the attack is stopping east of town, Pendleton is riding south of town. He also sends word to General Pender to stop his division from advancing. They stop as they are marching toward the Emmitsburg Road in battle formation. They pull back, and they are stopped for no other reason than they're running out of light. They don't know where the enemy is. Now they have a allegedly ghost column of Yankees to the east that were not ghosts at all. They were over 5,000 Yankees in position advancing up upon Benner's Hill when they were instructed to stop the advance and retire. Now we get into a political issue here about why they were stopped and so forth. Mm -hmm. Do you two have discussions where you disagree on things and analyze things or see things in a different way? We did as we were putting a book together. Yeah, yeah I think uh, I think a lot of the things, I mean, Dave makes a great point. I mean, obviously one of my focal points on the, the battle is exactly why did the Confederates not advance on July 1st? 
which of course sets up everything on July 2nd. Mm -hmm. Being a amateur student of Jubal Early and his division, they were in the right position to make an attack on July 1st. Uh, certainly, uh, as you know, to elaborate a little bit on David's point earlier, the officer who first told the senior command that there was Yankees coming up the up on the York Road was a uh, Virginia former governor of Virginia by the name of William Extra Billy Smith. Uh, Smith and Joe Worley did not like each other by any stretch of the imagination. They were lifelong enemies on many fronts, uh, opposite of each other in political beliefs. Uh, certainly disagreed entirely on on the approach to the battle. Well, Smith reported all these Yankees coming. Joe Worley didn't quite believe him, so he sent an entire brigade of Georgia mm -hmm. infantry under John Gordon out to take a look at that flank. I've always been convinced that you know if it hadn't been for Smith's report that maybe Early should have launched an attack on July 1st and probably wouldn't have been successful, but I think he should have at least tried or at least did a little bit more. He did send Avery's brigade on a belated uh, scouting mission off to the, to the extreme left. They were pushed back on artillery. But yeah, certainly on, on that point, I think, you know, Dave and I have also had some discussions on exactly how far did Wright's brigade get, you know, some of the other things about yes. the day two as well. Well, how often do you read accounts of the of the battle and they two accounts are in conflict with each other and you oh. think well no, wait a minute they're, they're saying opposite things oh yeah well first off George Stewart wrote in his book of Pickett's Charge uh, the battle was complexities and confusion mm -hmm. and he was talking about the historians right. how they study <laughs> it right. it's complexities and mm -hmm. it's confusing it really is you have to look at it and a lot of folks say well firsthand accounts well Let's jump to July 3rd here real quick. And you have a gentleman who has been mistakenly called a historian. His name was Thomas Aldrich. He was a cannoneer in the 1st Rhode Island Battery A. And they were literally from the morning of July 2nd to the climax of Pickett's Charge at the inner angle just north of the Copse of Trees. So he's 100 yards from the Copse of Trees, this six-gun battery. And they're in heavy combat. And this Aldrich who is allegedly first-hand account, writing his memoirs. Well, I try to stress to the people, no, he's not a historian. He was a participant. Now, how, what are you focused on when you're participating in a battle? Now, he specifically states by name the batteries that came in to the south of him when he's fighting his gun. And I got this from <laughs> Colonel Sheeds once again. And I'll reiterate, did the man stop his duties and go over there with a notepad and a pencil and find out the idea of this battery that came in 50 yards away? Or did he go down a quarter mile and ask the name of the battery commander? Or did he go down a little bit further than that, two-thirds of a mile, and ask a battery commander who he wrote came in? No, he didn't. He got that from somebody else later on when he was researching the same as Scott and I do. Mm -hmm. So even the participants right. disagreed on lots of things that happened. So no, his book is not a historical <laughs> right. event right. by a first account. And what he did is he wrote only what he saw. Everything else was projection speculation. Yeah, I think one of the, one of the things, Brian, as you go through these accounts, and obviously I haven't written now 18 books, uh, you'll find the very seldom two, two events really coincide. 
somebody's perspective is a little bit different. To Dave's point, they were focused on what was going on during the battle, and after the battle, they tended to write about things, often incorporating other information they've heard, maybe read from someone else, uh, and tried to piece together and interpret their own mm -hmm. positions. But reality is, a soldier on a battlefield only cares about survival uh, or killing the enemy, and so his immediate focus is certainly on what's happening within his cone of vision, uh, within his sphere of influence. Anything outside of that impact zone, he really doesn't know up to a point who's coming to the left, who's coming to the right, are they friendlies, are they enemies? You know, you may know some of that. Uh, and obviously in writing a number of books over the years, I found so many areas where things totally conflict. And as a writer, the best you can do is try to figure out if five out of seven say it happened this way, maybe it did. Uh, but there's always this caveat that you know, as new information comes out, you might find out that you were wrong in how you interpreted something. You may find out that, yeah, there's stuff that supports that interpretation of something. But it's one of the reasons why I think people continue to write about Gettysburg. It's such a complex battle with so many people, 150-some thousand soldiers here, you know, tens of thousands of separate accounts of what was going on, both Union and Confederate. And again, many of these people, you know, tend to the right 10 years later, 15, 20 years later when regimental histories were coming into play or when newspapers wanted accounts of the old veterans. And you just try to wade through all that and make the most sense you can, recognizing that as a writer, you're probably never going to get everything right. Well, that, that begs the question. Your book, The Second Day at Gettysburg, Attack and Defense of Cemetery Ridge, for all the books that have been written about Gettysburg and continue to be written about Gettysburg, how do you come up with something new? Like, why should people read this book as opposed right. to all of the thousands of other books? Well, in, in my opinion, uh, there's been a lot of great books written on Gettysburg. July 1st, 2nd, 3rd, about the campaign itself. Coddington, of course, being the Bible, in my opinion. Love that book. It's a great book. But what people say about this book here is that the authors are not afraid to say, we don't know. We're not sure. We're kind of like that soldier who participated. As a matter of fact, you probably have a better advantage to the participant who wrote a book during the uh, great cause after the Civil War. In other words, we have the internet. We have access. I am a licensed rare books reader and archivist at the Huntington Library out in California, and I have access to every institution that this country has. So that is wide open for me. Scott himself has the same access. So we don't meet on the battlefield and just discuss it with other participants and kind of project what happened a half a mile away or a quarter mile away, we can go right to the sources through these archives. And if we have, uh, like Wright's Brigade, the penetration of how far it was, how far it made, we can only speculate on what we read. Uh, General Wright himself, I don't take into account any of his work because he didn't participate in the fight. Right. He was sick and turned his command over to somebody else. So what do we do? We go to that commander and he doesn't state. Then you have to look at it from the aspect of the physical <coughs> nature of the terrain, the ground. Mm -hmm. This is where Scott and I very seldom disagree. Mm -hmm. I want to ask you about that, the, the, the line Cemetery Ridge. Mm -hmm. If you go there, how, can you recognize it as a ridge and it's high ground and how high a ground is it? Well, I think it, it varies widely from places. I mean, it's obviously more recognizable in the northern extremes 
where it culminates in East Cemetery Hill. And if you're coming across from Seminary Ridge and you're attacking or today hiking or walking, it's a very noticeable rise. If you get to the southern part of Cemetery Ridge, it's far less noticeable. And in fact, it sets up part of the key actions on day two when General Daniel Sickles moves his third corps forward out from Cemetery Ridge, where at that point it's very low, up to higher ground at the Peach Orchard. I want to ask you about that, uh, General Sickles. First of all, why wasn't he hanged for what he did at Gettysburg? <laughs> I think it was a couple of things. I mean, number one, I mean, Jim, Jim Hessler wrote a fantastic book called Sickles at Gettysburg. That he was on this show. I know show. you're very aware of, yeah. uh, Brian. But, you know, Jim and I have chatted about that before, and, and I've chatted with other folks that so there was a lot of sympathy for Sickles because the man loses his leg here. He certainly is a uh, extremely good talker. He's very well politically connected, former United States Congressman, of course. Um, and I think, you know, frankly, I, I often think that if he hadn't been wounded here and didn't have so much political sympathy, he might have certainly faced charges or at least faced a more serious inquiry than he did. Uh, but he certainly was very self-serving, quite a good, quite a good promoter. Himself and you know, kind of positioned himself as the, you know, defender of the center. And to be very honest, at that point in time, I think there was still, even then, was a lot of controversy on, you know, was it the right move? I mean, Meade himself had to go before the Committee on the Conduct of the War, you know, and explain his part of the whole entire role. So, and Sickles has defenders even in the Army uh, from the beginning. So, Dave, you want to add anything to that? Well, you really have to step back and looked at the principles, the policies of mm -hmm. the politics, which is what this book is, is, is about as much as mm -hmm. the battle action itself. Why was Sickle out there? Well, first off, there was only one brigade of the Third Corps ever placed on Cemetery Ridge, so he never moved forward. He was always out there. It's just that he never moved back. Yeah. Now, why was that one brigade that was placed there, why was it removed? It was removed because General Meade ordered it moved, not Sickles. That occurred because of the politics we're talking about here. Um, when Meade arrived at Gettysburg around midnight, they had a little preemptive meeting take place and where they were going to place some troops. Well, the Fifth Corps was going to come up, and remember we mentioned about Union troops advancing on Benner's Hill? and then withdrew, withdrew. Well, they knew there were Confederates out there. Well, Meade was thinking about a possible offensive around that hill, just like General Williams was the night before when he was called back. So he thought he would bring the Fifth Corps up and place it there. But in the meantime, he went on a reconnoiter down Cemetery Ridge and through the moonlight observed the West, the Western Theater, so to speak. And in that process, General Howard, who was a top engineer in the regular army along with General Meade and Robert E. Lee, pointed out the positions of the Confederates and was adamant that the attack was more than likely going to come from the west-northwest. Mm -hmm. Why? Because it was easier. You could move mass mm -hmm. troops across those open grounds to the west. By the time Meade got to Little Round Top, 3, 3.30 in the morning, he was convinced that that was probably going to be the cause. So he changed his mind, and he drew up a map where to place troops. The Fifth Corps was now going to go on the left where Little Round Top is today. But in the meantime, two brigades from the Twelfth Corps were placed there by Hancock on the night of the 1st. 
they were prematurely removed at 4 a.m., leaving that flank open. Well, when Meade found out that was left open and the Fifth Corps was where he initially wanted mm -hmm. it, chaos hit the fan. He had to go back in and replan everything. Now, this is what a lot of folks don't understand about Gettysburg or they don't know, mm -hmm. was Robert E. Lee was junior to Slocum. He was passed over. Slocum was passed over when Meade took command. And he was thrust into commanding a huge army, not just a corps. And that, along with a lot of other things and issues, uh, George occurred. Gordon Meade. You said Robert E. Lee. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, George Gordon Meade. Yeah, yeah. yeah. George yeah. Gordon Meade. <laughs> yeah. Meade uh, had to make amendments to his initial plan. And in the process of that... Uh, uh, I want to read about that because you, you write about... Uh, Call it foolishness, insubordination, or military boldness, but Sickles on his own made up his mind that he was not going to occupy the inferior ground of Lower Cemetery Ridge, so it sounded like he was countermanding his orders. Uh, but, but In fact, you, have, you paint a, a scenario where uh, Meade's son goes to g deliver a message to Sickles, and Sickles won't even see him. Correct. in his tent. But then you also say... Uh, like his adversary, Robert E. Lee, Meade was in the midst of a breakdown in command communications with subordinate generals who arguably placed their personal opinion, political issues, and or selfish ambition ahead of their assigned and sworn martial uh, duty. And you mentioned General uh, Slocum there. So uh, each side had Lee and Meade, each had generals below them who thought they knew better? Well, General Slocum was in charge of Meade's right wing. General Reynolds was in charge of the left wing. Uh, Reynolds is killed. Slocum is still in charge of that right wing, and he's still going to command the brigades under him, which was Sykes's Fifth Corps coming up, and the Sixth Corps, which was far away but coming up. And Slocum was adamant, was was adamant that that is where some of the action was going to be taking place, and he didn't want to release any of his troops. Once again, principles, policies, and politics. He didn't want to release any of his troops to be placed elsewhere, outside of his jurisdiction. Well, number one, you had a commander above you. It was his authority to place the troops where he wants, not yours. And I believe that, that Slocum did his best to stall, wait for the Sixth Corps, which is exactly in how it ended up. Meade decided to place, rather than move the Fifth Corps around to the left, he decided to place it in the middle where he could please Window or Slocum. And uh, that's where the Fifth Corps sat all day. In the process of that Fifth Corps sitting there all day, Sickles looked back and he saw the low ridge. Actually, Cemetery Ridge, where Scott was talking about, is 46 feet lower than the Emerson Road rise. Mm -hmm. So Sickles has gone, I'm going to lower ground, not higher ground. This is the higher ground. And when people keep saying he moved the Third Corps out, well, they're wrong. He placed his Humphreys Division along that high rise between present-day United States Avenue northward. Is that the Peach Orchard and Wheatfield? Yeah. In that area, correct. Didn't work out very well, did it? Uh, no, it didn't for him. But you know what? Worked as a buffer. Yeah, see, the speculation, of course, and what we can never know yes. for sure is what if he had stayed, obviously, behind, and that's been the hot debate for years, if he maintains the position of the true fish hook along South Seminary Ridge, 
you know, does that give James Longstreet a much longer field to attack? Uh, does the Confederates' uh, momentum wear out before they get to that line? Because now they're going well over a mile, a mile and a half to try to reach the Union line in that position. Or does he take the shock out of the, the Confederate attack by sitting on the Emmitsburg Rose, Rose, uh, Road and, you know, fighting Longstreet there, allowing the Fifth Corps time to, to, and Sixth Corps to come up in reserve? So, I mean, that's a huge debate, obviously, that will probably never be answered. It will be debated no. long after this generation of Civil War historians are gone as to whether, you know, Sickles really blunted the attack or did he destroy his corps by, you know, being in a position that in reality was attacked more furiously and more harder than perhaps it could have been if he'd have been back in other ground. One will never know, of course, Brian. Now, just a little information for people who have not been to Gettysburg. Is it right to say that you have um, Cemetery Hill to the Union right and Little Round Top to the left and Cemetery Ridge in between? That's cool. part, yeah, it's pretty much And right. then the Confederates were on the other side of the field. Sure. Now, where, where is the, this uh, fighting that you write about in your book compared to where uh, Pickett's Charge took place the next day? Pickett's Charge goes over much of the same ground, at least the southern part of Pickett's Charge goes over much of the same uh, terrain, of course, as the bulk of, of uh, Anderson's division on day two, particularly Wilcox uh, and to his south, Barksdale. Uh, so a lot of it, it's kind of the same ground. Uh, obviously, Pickett's Charge is a uh, shifted somewhat to the north versus the attack on day two, roughly the same you know, distance of terrain somewhat comparable amounts of men that are going forward in the two attacks. Certainly the Union has more artillery in line on July 3rd than they have on July 2nd to try to repel that. And it's a different artillery position, of course, on the second day. But a lot of the ground is pretty much the same, particularly, again, as this, this area between, uh, say, the uh, Bryan House and then the Peach Orchard. And when you write about the copse of trees in your book here, that's the same copse of trees that plays a role the next day? Yes. So they're basically the yes. same trees. Same trees. Same area. Yeah. So, and in fact, it's part of the reason why uh, Pickett goes forward on July 3rd is Ambrose Wright has reported that he almost got in there on July 2nd. Lee had seen his men push the Union line back repeatedly uh, from the Emmitsburg Road. Uh, position uh, and then continue to press them backwards until a makeshift Union artillery line uh, is set up uh, along uh, cemetery, uh, cemetery Ridge and finally stops and blunts the attack. Hancock, of course, brings in the 1st Minnesota, brings in Willard's Brigade, number of troops to try to blunt that attack. But Lee tends to think that, okay, it almost worked, uh, and Wright's feeding him full of that. And then, of course, his thought is they've been pulling troops from the left and right of the line to reinforce different positions. So, you know, uh, you know this may be the, the place to go. And so, in some ways, you can almost argue that Pickett's Charge is a continuation of the attack on July 2nd, uh, at least in Lee's mindset that, okay, it almost worked. Now let's try it again with uh, better artillery support, and it will work this time. How close did the South come to winning the battle on July 2nd? Oh, gee, you talk about speculation. Yeah. I hate to even guess on it. Yeah. Um, well, let's, if, if you are standing on, on West Confederate Avenue today, which has changed very little, and you look west toward 
say the Pennsylvania State Monument and then the copse of trees, you can see the spiral of the Pennsylvania Monument sticking up. That's and if you you're can, on the Confederate side looking yes, look toward at, the Union looking, lines. looking east. Mm -hmm. You're looking across the Emmitsburg Road, and you can barely make out today's copse of trees, which are large oaks. At that time, they were not. At that time, there was not a Pennsylvania Monument. Well, you know what? Between those two landmarks that are both on the hallowed ground today, you can barely see the roof of the large, ornate Kadori farm. And you can see the top of it only. Well, that barn was post-battle. The barn before that, you couldn't even see. Now, when Wright talks about advancing his Georgians, and he looks down into a valley and he sees Union guns, well, that Emmitsburg Road rise is much larger than Cemetery Ridge is, and you really can't see Cemetery Ridge. I don't know that Robert E. Lee could have even seen it from where he was mm -hmm. at the time of the battle and what he was up against. But I think the book, and toward the end of the book, it talks about uh, Pender's division gone in. We've discussed this, and I believe Scott and I still agree that, oh, how can I say this the, the right way? Pender's division was supposed to go in after Anderson, and there was a breakdown in command on the Confederate side. Just like there was a breakdown on the Union side, it happened here as well. One of the Confederate brigades did not go in. A Virginia brigade stayed in the woods. They did not continue that attack in Echelon. So there's a huge gap between Moses, or Posey's Mississippi Brigade and the right flank of Pender's division. One of Hill's brigade, or one of Anderson's brigades did not move. They sat in the woods. When General Pender was told to get his troops moving into action, a shell burst above him and he was knocked out of the saddle, mortally wounded. General Thomas, whose brigade should have went in an echelon, the first of his brigades to go in in echelon, sought to care for the general rather than you know, take action and move his brigade forward. He instead cared for the general, and it took nearly 30 minutes for word to reach General Lane, who was on the left of Pender's division near the Fairfield Road, to assume command and lead the division forward. By the time he rode to the right, talked to Thomas and assumed command, Wright's Georgians were following back. Posey's Mississippians were following back, and uh, Mahoney's Virginians still laid on the ground or in the woods, never participating. The minute Pender was wounded, I personally believe any opportunity the Confederates had was lost. Yeah, I think there's a few other points as well to think of. Uh, Dave's point is certainly very valid. In fact, Robert E. Lee himself would later blame the loss of Pender as being a key element in his defeat at Gettysburg. You remember on July 2nd, there were a lot of near misses that could have went several different directions. I mean, starting at the south, certainly, uh, where the attack is first launched. We are all familiar, of course, with the story of Little Round Top and the probably overblown role of uh, Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain and the defense of that. 
area. But the Confederates certainly had an opportunity until the Union kept pouring more and more troops into that region. You certainly had the fighting at the wheat field that if there, had, again, had not been troops more poured into that region, you had the chance to break through uh, after uh, Barksdale sweeps through the Third Corps then at the Peach Orchard pushes them back. Of course, you had the gallant stand by Bigelow's 9th Massachusetts. Uh, battery at the Trousel Farm. You've got a lot of opportunities. You have the, uh, you know, belated uh, or lack thereof uh, actions by Posey and Mahone, but then you continue on into the night. Uh, even after that attack stops, they will finally launch the attacks on Cemetery Hill in Culp's Hill uh, late at night. And again, the Confederates will get onto both of those hills, certainly at Cemetery Hill. Uh, Perry Hayes will get up there, will stay very briefly with the counterattacks that are hitting him. But again, not only does uh, uh, the men of Pender's division not go forward, neither does Robert Rhodes. So Rhodes' men don't support Early's two brigade attack on Cemetery Hill. It's another speculation. What mm -hmm. if Rhodes would have attacked at the same time in coordination with Jubal Early? You know, would that have made a difference? And then, of course, there was the attack on the Culp's Hill that culminated the fighting on July 2nd, where, again, an entire Confederate brigade, Stonewall Brigade, doesn't participate uh, necessarily because they're out guarding the flank. Uh, you know, and it's, of course, some people blame Jeb Stewart for not being out there on the flank with his cavalry. And you've got to have the infantry out uh, guarding uh, Brinkerhoff's Ridge and some of the areas to the east of the town off of today's Route 116. But the Confederates had multiple opportunities on July 2nd. Any one of those, if he had penetrated, could have dramatically changed the positions. The Joshua Chamberlain little round top story is overblown? Well, that's a good point. I mean, I think it was certainly valiant, but I think there are a lot of people that uh, Mr. Chamberlain was very brave soldier, there's no doubt of that, but he certainly tended to play up his own role in the battle afterwards. Uh, I mean, you can make the argument that the fighting on Culp's Hill, uh, George Green's defense of Culp's Hill was far more strategically important true. Uh, mm -hmm. during that point in time than the, the Little Round Top. And if Little Round Top falls, the Confederates take it, that's probably not a good thing, but the same token, it's not a very good artillery platform. You know, you know it's, it's out of, it's out of uh, line of sight of a lot of the Union line, uh, or at least with an easy uh, rifle shot of a lot of the Union line. So given a choice, I mean, I'm sure the Robert E. Lee would have much preferred Cemetery Hill fall uh, than to lose Little Round Top. So I tend to, again, put more stock in the 11th Corps and the 2nd Corps' defense of Cemetery Hill as being more important, I think, and I certainly put a lot more faith into George Green's defense of Culp's Hill on the evening of July 2nd than I do on Chamberlain's. Uh, but Chamberlain gets all the publicity, had a great movie that's very entertaining. Uh, but in some ways, that shaped history because uh, a lot of the people, even people I know very well, will always want to talk to me about Chamberlain in the defense of Little Round Top. And I'm like, there's a lot more to Gettysburg than Little Round Top. Well, one person we've barely mentioned so far is Winfield Scott Hancock. Mm -hmm. what, what was his job there, and, and what was he pivotal in? Well, the superb. Major General Winfield Scott Hancock. Did he have that nickname before this battle? Yes, he did. Yes, he did. And that name was tossed on him when he assumed command of an attack at Antietam. Uh, what, September before? September 17th. After that yeah. battle, he was known as the Superb. He, in attacking 
I think his his corps was attacking uh, Sunken Road, I believe, mm -hmm. in the continuous attacks. But it, it it grew and it stayed. It was it was he was known as the superb even by then. His division commander in Antietam. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but Hancock coming into Gettysburg, of course, as Dave mentioned, commanded one of the wings of the Army of the Potomac. So when he first arrives on the field, he actually takes title or command to the field, somewhat at the consternation of Oliver Howard, who outranked him, certainly thought he was in command of the battlefield. So Hancock makes a lot of troop dispositions on July 1st. Uh, certainly, uh, you know, in Meade's mind, Hancock's in charge of the entire field at that point. By July 2nd, he ha his corps happens to be in the right position to be in some ways the linchpin of the entire battlefield because it's the second corps is going to provide most of the reinforcements that are going to go into the wheat field. They're going to have the reinforcements later in the day that are going to go to Cemetery Hill. So Hancock's position in the center becomes absolutely crucial to the defense of the Union Army. And Dave, of course, wrote a very, very popular uh, book, uh, Battle Between the Farmlands, uh, Hancock Saves the Center, which forms somewhat the nucleus of the work here. But in that study, I know when I first came to admire Dave's work uh, as he discusses the pivotal role that Hancock really played on that day. It sounds from your book like he was everywhere. Uh, he, I think he pretty much was. Uh, it's cause and effect. Uh, we get back to Meade in the morning, moving Sykes to please Slocum in the center. Well, that move turned out very pivotal because we know that the Fifth Corps was in a position to, to occupy the left flank. Well, here's how that occurred, was when Hancock is moving after the night of July 1st and the troops are deployed per Hancock. By the way, he placed uh, the first piece of retiring artillery on the night of July 1st in position and pointed to the gunner and told the, or the chief of peace, I'm sorry, uh, the lieutenant uh, in charge of that section had not arrived yet. But he told the chief of that piece, do not move that gun unless I order you to do so. And that gun stayed there until the, until the ending. And the artillery was placed around that one gun on East Cemetery Hill. He was a good soldier. But on the morning of July 2nd, his corps was called up at 4 in the morning, 4.30 in the morning. He was on the Taney Town Road moving north. And unbeknownst to Hancock, the... Uh, Geary's two brigades were moving off the left flank and they crossed paths where the present-day Wheatfield Road meets the Baltimore Pike. Are the Taneytown Road and the Wheatfield, yeah, the Wheatfield Road and the Taneytown Road intersect and Geary was moving his troops back to Baltimore Pike. Now, Meade did not know this was occurring until Hancock rode up to him and told him that Geary left the position he ordered him to occupy the night before. Now Meade knew that the round tops were unoccupied. There started the chain of events, mm. as I like to call it, cause and effect. Mm. You know, the Fifth Corps is placed in, placed in the center. Meade has now got to do something because Hancock reported that there are no more troops on Little Round Top. Meade then orders Ward's Brigade, the only Third Corps Brigade, who had assumed position on Cemetery Ridge, south. Mm. Hancock is placed his corps is placed east of the Taneytown Road, facing north. And there Hancock actually starts to assume his commanding role of July 2nd. He first brings up one division, he brings up a second division. He then brings up his third division. And 
they are spread around, and he starts piecemealing his entire corps along Cemetery Ridge to meet the threat that Howard, at least, thought was coming. Mm -hmm. One of the things, Brian, if I could just add, that's always fascinating me about the second day of the battle. I got involved in this book partially because I, I was starting to study Anderson's division at Gettysburg and the thought that eventually I would branch out from doing just Jubal Early to start looking at Richard Heron Anderson and his men. Uh, and Ted Savas asked me to get involved in this project because he knew partially of my interest in that and uh, you know my familiarity with uh, some of uh, Ted's other books and the and the uh, structure and the flow and the, and the style that he wanted these books to be in. But I really contrast Richard Heron Anderson's performance on July 2nd versus Hancock across the way. As you mentioned, right. Hancock's everywhere. Anderson's not. In fact, Anderson has a reputation. Uh, in fact, one of his fellow generals calls him indolent, that you know, he's a good soldier. He's been in the Army for a long, long time. That, uh, as another uh, commentator has remarked, that Anderson lacked the fire in the belly that he just didn't react, didn't sense what was happening on the battlefield, didn't have the intuition that maybe Hancock had that I need, and you know, this, this, this line is wavering, maybe I need to rush over there personally. I mean, Hancock personally places artillery to the front. Mm -hmm. He brings two batteries out and puts them right into position uh, to help with the cause. There's not much discussion of what Anderson did. Uh, he certainly isn't out placing artillery. He's not riding over to Posey and Mahone necessarily and, you know, ordering them with any kind of urgency. I mean, you know, Mahone's guys are still sitting in the woods, as Dave's pointed out before, and we don't have very many accounts of Anderson, you know, ordering, pushing, cajoling, persuading, you know, use any verb you want to, but he's not there uh, with any kind of uh, sense that, you know, thou shalt do this. It's more of a, you know, come on, these are the orders. Uh, and so I think, you know, Hancock's very, very good on day two, but I think it's equally, I mean, it's another one of the great speculations. If he was facing somebody else besides Dick Anderson in this center, would it have been a different story? We'll never know. So, Where were Meade and Lee as the whole battle unfolded, and how did they keep track of everything that was going on? That's a great question. Uh, that's that's still debated. <laughs> Especially the Lee part. Uh, yeah, the Lee part, absolutely. Uh, Why is that? Why do you say especially the Lee part? Well, there's, there's several things that, several things that, that, that occurred that, that I still wonder why he let occur. In other words, where was Hill? It wasn't so much where was Robert E. Lee, but where was Lieutenant General Hill? You know, he commanded the Third Army Corps, and that Third Army Corps was an instrumental part in Lee's plan for July 2nd. Yet Lee, history has shown, did not oversee Hill's Corps like he did Longstreet's. Mm -hmm. I mean, he allowed Longstreet a long arm. I mean, he gave him a lot of leeway to do what he had to do. Hill, it seems like he allowed him to do nothing which is, well, many historians say exactly what he did, nothing. He was very seldom on scene. Robert E. Lee did make his appearance on uh, South Cemetery Ridge several times during the day and conferred with Hill one of those times, Longstreet one of those times, uh, General Wilcox one of those times. Mm -hmm. But he never assumed the position that Meade did let alone Hancock. Uh, 
Meade was pretty much in his, his headquarters most of this time. And he was concerned about his right flank more so than his left flank. Once again, because of Slocum and Slocum's continuous pushing the issue mm -hmm. that you know, watch your right, watch your right, watch your right. That's why Meade left Sykes on the Baltimore Pike for as long as he did. But with that said, when he moved the fifth corps to the center from the far right, he specifically told Sykes, if Sickles asks you for help, send him a brigade. Send him what he needs to hold that flank. Because of Hancock, he knew Geary's position. Had, he had prematurely left the left flank open. Why did he do that? Nobody seems to know. Mm -hmm. There's nowhere. You look at the official reports, you look at the memoirs, you look at all the correspondences, and nobody knows where that came from. Outside of the fact that uh, Hancock reported him as moving off mm -hmm. the position. So I've never found a, a report. No. At the end of your book, you say Major General George Meade won a hard-fought battle on July 2nd that is often referred to as a tactical draw in the historical literature. So you count it as a win for Meade? I think in the long run, if you look at it, yes. I mean, you almost have to because if the Confederate objective is to drive the Union Army off the field and win a victory in Pennsylvania, they do neither no. on July 2nd. Uh, so, you know, certainly tactically, they both, you know, hold their positions pretty much at the end of the day. But for Robert E. Lee, he cannot have a stalemate. I mean, he's had a stalemate at Antietam, and he had to withdraw after it. Uh, certainly July, and I think that's still weighing on his mind at Gettysburg, that at the end of the day on July 2nd, he's really not driven the Army from the field, much like Antietam, had plenty of opportunities, uh, but nothing's really happened at that point. He's got, in his mind, he's got to stick around until day three and somehow still win this decisive victory in Pennsylvania. So I think that uh, if you look at it from that line, Brian, uh, yeah. I mean, strategically, day two certainly is a Union victory because they hold their positions throughout the day, uh, suffer a lot of casualties, but, it, but by nightfall, the Confederates have merely made no major inroads into the terrain. Well, we could keep talking, but unfortunately, we're out of time. We have been talking about this book, The Second Day at Gettysburg, The Attack and Defense of Cemetery Ridge, and we've been talking with David Schultz and Scott Mingus. Thank you very much. Thanks, Brian. Thank you very much. You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books, a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. We'd like to hear from you. Our email address is pabooks at pcntv.com. Like us on Facebook to learn more about PA Books.